Hello, my name is Mateus. I'm a master's student in biomedical engineering. And I'm Phil, a master's student in biochemistry. You are listening to Orders of Magnitude, the science podcast where we explore topics going from a single vaccine dose all the way to the largest bioreactors. This week, our guest is Julia Fulber. Julia is currently a master's student in biomedical engineering also, mm-hmm. same program as Mateus. Uh, she is currently studying how to make bioreactors. Bioreactors that are used, they, they look like big buckets that they are using to have many cells alive to make vaccines in a more efficient way. So we go into the details of how these work and how we make uh, them more efficient. And we also talk about the different types of vaccines that we have available today. Exactly. It is critical to be able to make vaccine at a large scale since we want to vaccinate billions of people and it has to be cost efficient because we have to vaccinate people in countries that are less rich often. (laughs) So a great podcast this week. Have a good one. Have a good time. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for coming. Today, we are talking about some very, very good topics for the times that we are living in. Yes. We will be talking about viruses, about vaccines, bioreactors. That's a new word. A lot of people don't know what that <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. And you will be explaining to us yes. what all of that is. We're very excited to have you here and talk about all of this. Why don't we start? What was that the first question that you had, Phil? It was a really good one. Yeah, the first question is, what problem does your research address? Yeah. And yeah, how does it work? (laughs) Yeah, so um, I think in a more general vision, the main problem that my research tries to address is um, the gap between generating vaccines in labs, like creating new vaccines and actually producing them at large scales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so should I continue elaborating a bit? Go on. on. Um, So basically, um, vaccines can be produced in several different ways. Um, I think we've seen so much research of trying to create vaccines for COVID, for example, but um, sometimes, um, you know, of course, different research will address different problems and many times they create the vaccines but aren't necessarily already thinking about how it's going to be produced, um, what are ways that it can be produced that will be feasible at large scales and that can actually be oops, sorry, no taken... Um, to, you know, mass scale productions, because as we know, vaccines are used for entire populations and it's kind of a big strategy, right? Rather than just um, drugs, which sometimes are more for just people that have that disease or more reduced um, population. Right, right. So, so it's a challenge. When we're doing drugs, as you're saying, we, we don't have to have everyone or the majority yeah. of the people with yeah. the drug, but the vaccines, we want as many people as we can of with the course. vaccine, right? And we're talking about yeah. billions and billions of people, right? Yeah. With, uh, we have 7 to 8 billion people in the world. Which so. is 14 billion doses, right? Oh, yes, because yeah. it's two doses. So the yeah, amount depending of on the vaccine that you have to, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Plus yeah. the booster shots eventually, we yeah. don't know. For variants and all. You're telling me that even today, Pfizer, the big pharma, haven't yet optimized the process of making vaccine at its very best. So there's still some research to be done in order to make vaccines and other drugs more efficiently. Um, well, I'd say that the companies that are currently producing it at that point already have that figured out. But I think um, what I meant was more in the sense that many labs, um, like research labs, uh, joined this race to try to create new vaccines, but haven't... Um, But creating a vaccine doesn't necessarily mean it's already ready to go. Mm -hmm. You still need to create a production process for it as well. So Mm -hmm. that's where our lab jumps in. Absolutely. Uh, One thing I've heard um, and that I know for a fact is true is that between the moment we had the genome from COVID and the moment that they had the RNA that would become the vaccine, it took less than uh, two days, I think. Mm. And the whole year after that was going to clinical testing and Mm -hmm. ramping up the production of it. Yeah. So yeah. these steps are critical for the next pandemic. If we can yeah, have these sure. techniques ready to go to ramp up production, mm-hmm. we could have vaccines much faster next time it happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one reason why these companies were able to um, do that so quickly was because, for example, the RNA technology they used, um, they had already studied it for other purposes. They already had information on it. Um, so... That's kind of also one of the main points of my project is it's not necessarily 
oh, the production process for this specific vaccine, but also like by developing this production process that I'm developing, it can later be adapted Mm -hmm. for new um, vaccines that need to be used. So having that previous knowledge, establishing that process makes it quicker to then use for new um, purposes, new emerging diseases and all that. That's kind of the concept of a platform of production, something that you can change, just (laughs) change some minor details and then it can be um, used for something new. Mm -hmm. That's really, really cool. Uh, So having research being done now so that whenever we need, we already know the stuff that we need to know to have things done fast. Yeah, exactly. And we're talking about mRNA vaccines and uh, the production of that in like two days and then clinical trials right away. Um, let's let's back up and talk about the different types of vaccines because we hear mm-hmm. oh, mRNA vaccines or before we had virus, virus attenuated vaccines, all that type yeah. of stuff. Why don't you, can you just summarize to us a little bit the different types that we have right now? Of course. So, um, well, first of all, um, vaccines can be uh, for viruses. They can also be for bacteria. We also have diseases caused by bacteria that we have vaccines for. I'm going to talk more about viral vaccines since that's what I work with. And also with COVID-19, that's what we're dealing with. It's a virus. SARS-CoV-2 mm-hmm. is the virus. So, um, well, yeah, like you mentioned, there's many types. I think um, traditionally... The one that um, we might have heard of before is the inactivated type. Um, so for influenza, for example, the you know seasonal flu that we um, get shots for, well, we have shots available for every year, usually. Um, that one uh, very frequently is made up of inactivated viruses, which means um, you'll have a virus and essentially you kill it um i use that word cautiously because maybe if the viewers have seen the podcast on viruses they're not exactly alive Mm -hmm. per se but you make it unable to infect you inactivate it so it's not activated anymore it can't um infect the person that it's injected into um it's essentially the corpse of a virus (laughs) yeah (laughs) so um The virus, if we were to simplify it a lot, it has um, the genetic material, which is um, what carries the information to make more viruses. So that can be either RNA or DNA, depending on the type of the virus. Um, And it also has proteins, which um, will have different functions, but most importantly, what our body first sees when we have these viruses in our body are the proteins on the outside. So many people have seen um, news about the spike protein, which um, in co- for COVID-19, in SARS-CoV-2, it's the main protein that is being looked at for vaccines and all because um, it's an antigen, which means um, a part that our immune system recognizes mm-hmm. and will fight against and will remember for the next times. So for vaccines, that remembering part is really what's important, right? So, yes, so for inactivated vaccines, you already have that whole virus already in the structure that it usually has. It's just not um, able to have any function. So your body can see that entire, entire virus and choose what it wants to respond to. So you can say it's a more robust response because your body is seeing all of the virus. Yeah. They can develop uh, antibodies against yeah. many parts of yeah. the virus, yeah. uh, for example. Yeah. Uh, the, the the trick is to inactivate it without destroying the outer part, I yeah. would suppose, and yeah. so that it's a, it's something that your body can recognize. Yeah. Um, you can recognize someone by their corpse, probably, uh, but if they have been burnt, <laughs> yeah. maybe it yeah. will be harder to recognize that's them. True, is that a good true. analogy? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Good. So that's the first uh, mm-hmm. heat-activated or inactivated uh, yeah. virus is yeah. the first type of uh, vaccine. Um, and then you'd also have the attenuated viruses, which they're still not fully inactivated. They can still have some sort of activity, but... Um, you can say maybe the virus has a broken leg or You give it something. a little bonk. A bonk. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it can't um, infect at the same level it usually does. So you're making it safer. You're making it less dangerous for, um, for the person receiving 
receiving that virus because, of course, uh, we want vaccines to be safe as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So since it still has some level of activity, it means our body is going to be a lot more vicious against it compared to just a corpse floating around, which might not um, seem to pose much of a problem as a virus that actually has some sort of activity. So as I go through the types of vaccines, I think something that's kind of a recurring theme is this balance between being safe, um, but also being effective. We want our body to see it as a threat, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, we don't want it to be an actual threat. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so each of these types will be on a different part of that spectrum. Um, This, uh, what's the name of this kind of of vaccine? uh, Attenuated. Attenuated. This attenuated must be the least safe of the possible vaccines, but also the most efficient because the vi- the, the virus is able to replicate uh, to some extent and trigger the immune yeah. system yeah. even more. Yeah, compared to the inactivated one, yeah. for sure. Um, I, I want to save the one I work with for last, but then we'll see how that one, to me, is the best of both mm-hmm. worlds because I work with it. Yeah. Um, but... I guess the next one I can mention is one that would be on the safer side, which is just using a single protein. So those are called subunit vaccines. Um, instead of using a whole virus that has, that, you know, is formed by different proteins, it has its structure, um, you just choose a single part of that virus. So it's very safe because compared to the other types, because of course, it's just a single part of the virus. It won't be able to have a a deadly effect or a dangerous effect on people but um for uh, SARS-CoV-2 for example it would be the spike protein we choose the protein that we know the body will uh, recognize on the exterior of the virus Mm -hmm. um yeah so that's another type subunit vaccines which is just a part of the virus these have been the most uh the most frequent outside of influenza in the past years before we got to your favorite type of vaccine (laughs) right yeah and one comment as well that when we get more into the production uh, we might mention this more is um the subunit vaccine since it's just a protein you can use several different ways to produce it So, for example, you can even use bacteria and yeast to produce it if you engineer them to produce that single protein um, because it's a lot more simple than, um, you know, an entire virus which would not be able to infect like yeast, for example. So it wouldn't be able to be produced in yeast, but just a protein, you can do that. It's harder to uh, cultivate human cells than yeast or uh, bacteria. Yeah, 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 you need some... They stick on some membranes and then you have to infect them with the virus. Whereas bacteria is just in solution. So you can have a whole volume producing your subunit, like you said. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We'll circle back to that in a second. Uh I have more to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so we went through the subunit one. A kind of... Plus for okay, yeah, go ahead. Let's just summarize. We're we're accumulating a lot of, uh, yeah, of yeah, terms yeah. <laughs> here. So you just presented three different types of vaccines, yes. right? Those three are the, the the ones the let's call them the classic ones, mm-hmm. right? They're the classic types of vaccines. So you have a uh, inactivated virus. Yes. We have an attenuated virus. Yes. And then you have a part of a virus. Exactly. Right? The subunit, as yeah. you call. The inactivated is a vi- it's the corpse of a virus. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't quite do what a virus usually do, but it mm-hmm. still look like the virus, so yeah. you can put it there. The attenuated virus is still alive, but it gave it a huge bonk before you put it in the patient, and it's kind of drunk. It can do its thing like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the third one is just a piece. It's a piece of the virus. Exactly. Uh, and all of these cause an immune response that protects you against the virus afterwards. So these three are the classic ones, the main ones until now. Mm -hmm. And what are the other ones? The other ones, okay. So um, one that's kind of just a step ahead of the subunit one. So the subunit would be just a protein, for example. But then you have VLPs, which are um, virus-like particles. Um, So what these are is you... May, um, instead of having a single protein, you have multiple proteins that assemble together to form the structure of the virus, but it's empty. It doesn't have the genetic material of the virus, so it's not able to infect as well because it doesn't have all the parts, but it's already more representative of the virus than just one protein, right? Mm-hmm. Like we mentioned before, it gives the immune uh, the immune system an option of 
where to um what to build immunity against it can see the whole picture mm -hmm. so um so we imagine that it would have a better response than just against a single protein um so those are vlps mm -hmm. And the, the difference between an inactivated virus is in the case of the inactivated virus, you make virus and then you kill it. Yeah. Whether in the other uh, other case, it's more sterile. You make the virus capsule or the vi virus yeah, exterior yeah. without having a the true virus. live virus. Yeah. So it must be considered a bit safer. Yeah, even in the production, because when you think about that, um, for example, say you have a pandemic virus, a very dangerous virus. And if you want to make the inactivated virus, you're going to have to use that virus to infect cells so that these cells produce more of it, and then you inactivate it. Mm -hmm. So the biosafety level um, required to produce that is much higher than if you were just producing um, proteins of that virus without actually dealing with the virus, the live virus itself. Yeah, when you're in a very devastating pandemic, the, yeah. the last thing you want is an outbreak in the vaccine producing facility. <laughs> of course, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. Yeah, we do we do have uh, labs that are well equipped to deal with this type of things, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's very, very unlikely that we have an outbreak coming outside of a lab if everyone yeah. follows protocol. Um, but that's just, it, it, if you're working with a live virus to produce the vaccine, it complicates the process of making the vaccine because you have to wear a bunch of PPE. You look like an astronaut when you go into those level three, level four <laughs> labs, right? And, uh, it's so hard to like manipulate the stuff. Yeah. It takes a long time because of extra protocol. So it's just harder to make the vaccine. So if you work with something else, then a live virus is much better, right? Yeah. Okay. And very importantly, um, more complicated also means it's more expensive, mm -hmm. which is um, science doesn't exist just as science, right? We exist in a world where economy and politics and all that matters. Mm -hmm. So um, if, some, if a process is a lot more expensive and the company won't get a return for that, it's not feasible. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be made. So um, it's also something to take in, in consideration when... Scalability. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Feasibility, scalability, all that. So, um, okay, yeah. So we talked about the more traditional types, let's say. The VLP that I just mentioned is already more innovative, mm -hmm. you could say. Um, and then uh, now we get into what's been very commonly talked about, I think. Uh, when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines, which are the RNA vaccines and the viral vector vaccines. So um, I can talk about the RNA and the DNA ones first. So um, for the DNA and RNA vaccines, you will have the genetic material um, encapsulated in some way. So you won't introduce the actual virus to the person, just um, DNA or RNA. Um, So what's what the difference would be is the RNA is already ready for our cell to make the protein. So when you introduce RNA into a cell, um, the cell has <laughs> the cell itself and then it has the nucleus inside and mm -hmm. the nucleus is where DNA usually stays in the cell. But if you have an RNA vaccine, it just needs to enter the cell. It doesn't need to enter the nucleus. It doesn't need it and it doesn't do it. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Which is also a safety concern because the RNA won't get near your own genetic material. Um, it would be degraded. Your body would eliminate it before mm -hmm. that could happen. So the goal of these RNA vaccines is um, it has the code, the sequence for, um, for example, the spike protein. Um, so it has the recipe, you could say. It has a recipe. This recipe goes inside your cell and your own cell produces the viral protein. Um, and once the protein is produced, your body will recognize it, fight against it, um, and create immunity. Mm -hmm. So these types of vaccines weren't very commonly used before, but now we've seen that so far they seem to be the most successful in this pandemic. We've seen Pfizer and Moderna um, being mentioned a lot and being used a lot. I took Moderna. I don't know if you guys <laughs> also took an RNA vaccine. Did, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, here yeah. in Canada, a lot of people did. Um, so yeah, I think it's a type of vaccine we'll probably be seeing a lot more of, um, in the future for other, um, other diseases. Um, 
yeah, it was kind of a breakthrough moment for this type of vaccine. <laughs> right. uh, now a, in the pandemic. I'm an mRNA researcher. So oh. it excites me a lot for yeah. RNA, for normal people to know mm -hmm. what an RNA is. Yeah. However, yeah. if I remove that bias and I think about the principle you just discussed, it seems like a roundabout way to have the part of a virus. Yeah. yeah. Right? To do the same thing as, a how is it called? Vaccine. The subunit vaccine. Yeah. It's yeah. a... You give the instructions to your cells to make the subunit vaccine, yeah. a little part of the virus. Yeah, hmm. you could say what that. What are the advantages of using RNA? Yeah, so um, one of them right off the bat is actually in the production because, um, you know, working with RNA or even DNA, um, uh, there are technologies to produce uh, these sequences to synthesize, 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 yeah. synthesize um, RNA or DNA. So actually, you don't need to use cells for this. Uh, it can be a cell-free production system. As opposed to everything else we've talked about. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, which would typically use cells um, to obtain the protein or the virus mm -hmm. or uh, whatever it is. So um, this makes it a much more straightforward system because it's like, chemical synthesis basically you don't use live um biological systems you don't mm -hmm. use cells um so it's yeah it's a lot more of like you have a recipe you have a code to synthesize and then that's it and then you encapsulate it and it's ready to go it's a lot and more chemical than yeah you can do that in water with the chemicals whereas when you do it with cells you can always be a bit scared and yes, it's kind of safe, but to get a, a bit of bacterial juice or of mm, uh, yeast yeah. juice in your virus, uh, in your vaccine, yeah. which is not always yeah. best for safety. There's definitely some intense quality control when it comes to the purification and making sure um, there's this concept of host cell proteins and um, host cell genetic material like DNA, for example, which means... Um, when you produce a vaccine using cells, you want to make sure the material of those cells you used isn't in the final vaccine to a certain extent. Um, there's There would be like a threshold, a threshold for mm -hmm. how much you can have that will still be safe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, and then I think we move on to the last type. Mm -hmm. So the last type I'm mentioning right now would be the viral vectors, which is what I work with. So um, before, we mentioned the attenuated viruses, right, where you have a virus that is active, which means your immune system will respond more intensely to it, but um, it might be a concern in safety because you want to make sure that virus will not actually be a threat um, since it still has some activity. So with viral vectors, what you do is you take a virus that you know is safe to humans, even if it's um, active to some degree, and you disguise it as the virus you want to protect against. So, for example, I'll already name drop the one I work with, which is NDV, mm -hmm. Newcastle disease virus. It's a virus that infects birds. It's an avian virus, uh, infects poultry. So it's actually safe for humans because uh, it doesn't cause disease in humans at all, only in birds. Um, so you can take a virus that's safe for humans like that and um, engineer it genetically so that it has the proteins on the outside of the virus you want to protect against. Mm -hmm. So it's disguised as SARS-CoV-2 because mm -hmm. it has those spikes out there, which your body will recognize, and then it'll have immunity for SARS-CoV-2. Um, so since uh, you can use an active virus for this, um, like the NDV, for example, um, usually, as a disclaimer, usually it still is attenuated to some degree for, for safety concerns, but um, yeah, it does have some activity, so it'll induce more immunity while also being um, safe in terms of you're not using the actual SARS-CoV-2 virus. I see, I see. So it's it resembles a little bit the attenuated one, Yeah. but it's like instead of taking the COVID virus and bonking that and putting that in someone that that's dangerous you don't want covid on you because yeah. covid man it, it can kill you right mm -hmm. so instead you take another virus that you know it doesn't do anything to humans you bonk that and then you give it a, a mask 
yeah, cure. Yeah. Pretend you're COVID. <laughs> yeah. And then it shows up in the body. A Ooh. Halloween costume. Yeah. <laughs> and so it does the same, the same, kind of the same thing as the attenuated one, but with a non uh, a virus that is not dangerous, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine because it's also replicating, the response will be much better than just yeah. the inactive virus exactly. or just pieces of the virus. Yeah, that's right? the idea. Mm-hmm. My question is, mm-hmm. is it though, is it replicating? Because it, you're saying it's a virus that is specialized to only replicate in birds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in the genome that you put inside the COVID particle, it's a bird virus. So wouldn't you end up being like, not infected, but would, wouldn't your body end up producing bird virus and uh, protecting you against bird virus? <laughs> yeah, so... um So even though the virus uh, is meant to infect birds, um, it will be able to replicate to some degree in the uh, human body, Mm. but definitely not uh, in the same way. It won't be efficient enough Uh. to cause an infection. Mm -hmm. So it might be able to replicate to some degree. Um, And also this, um, I assume, when it comes to the formulation of the dose, they take that into consideration. Like maybe this virus, you already need... Um, more virus in the dose compared to others since this one won't replicate efficiently in humans um but yeah it will still work to generate a response because um yeah one of the reasons it's uh, it doesn't uh get to the level of causing a serious infection in humans is because our body gets rid of it right so it is enough to generate a response and one advantage of um using viruses that are not uh, don't cause human disease for example avian viruses or um in some vaccines i think they've used chimpanzee viruses mm-hmm. um is that since it doesn't circulate in the human population we don't usually already have immunity to that virus um but if you use a viral vector if you use a virus that actually is a human virus For example, um, some of the vaccines are using adenovirus. Mm -hmm. When you use human adenovirus, even though, you know, it's still not harmful uh, enough to humans, they consider it safe enough to be used as a vector. Since it's a human virus, we might already have immunity to it because it circulates. We clear it too fast to be able to even see that spike protein there and make a response to it. So that's one advantage of using viruses that aren't human is... There's a smaller chance that someone in the population will already have immunity to it. I see. The only goal of that secondary virus, if you wish, the avian virus, is to locally trigger an immune response. For your body to be like, there's something fishy going on, bring up the immune cells. And the immune cells will recognize both the avian virus but also the COVID particles that are there, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. That, uh, wait, sorry. So that brings to my mind, a. Uh, I can think of a problem with that approach, would be very, which would be similar to uh, antibiotics problem that we have now, right? If we start using vaccines like this, which one of the advantages is, we don't have the immunity for the avian virus, at one point, we'll all have immunity to the avian virus. Yeah. Then you can't use that anymore. Yeah. Right? Just change when, virus. <laughs> change virus, but at one point, wouldn't we run out? Yeah, so that's exactly one of the concerns with viral vectors, um, especially since some viral vectors aren't only used for vaccines, but also for gene therapy. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, uh, yeah, adenovirus, for example, or um, AV, but I'm, I'm not sure AV. Adeno-associated virus. Yeah, I'm not sure that's... Um, in the plan for vaccines. Mm. But the idea is if you have a virus that can also be used for gene therapy, Mm. but you're already using it in a whole population for a vaccine, then that population will probably not be able to have gene therapy with that same virus Mm -hmm. because now you have immunity to it. And so if the virus is introduced, it'll be cleared. So in gene therapies, just since I mentioned it, to summarize uh, what that means is you would have a virus carrying um, some genetic information to fix some sort of uh, genetic um, disease that a person might have. Mm -hmm. So um, gene therapy is very different to vaccines in the sense that gene therapy is very restricted to only, you know, a certain group of individuals that will have this genetic disease. While vaccines are meant for an entire population, 
So with vaccines, there's definitely that concern of, okay, when you're using this viral vector, you're um, immunizing this entire population against this viral vector as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some ways around that um, that I even thought of mentioning before, but now I don't remember in response to <laughs> what it was that you mentioned. But there is some engineering going on with viral vectors. Um, so when you use genetic engineering with viral vectors, you can use it for this main purpose we mentioned, which is camouflaging it, introducing the protein of another virus to disguise it as that virus. But you can also do engineering for several other purposes, such as um, the, um, the human adenoviruses. I'm just trying to remember exactly because research came to mind, but I don't remember exactly what they did. Take your time. But um, <laughs> my turn. You can disguise the human adenovirus as an animal adenovirus. Um, basically, in proteins, you have several regions of these proteins, which are called domains, and you can change um, some domains to um, change the exterior of the virus. Mm-hmm. So you're still using that same virus, but let's say you change a few proteins to make it look slightly different, and that could be a strategy to avoid what we just mentioned of, okay, you use this viral vector as a vaccine, the entire population recognizes it now and will clear it. So you can tweak it slightly to still use the same virus, but make it not recognizable anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of research going on. Point is, it is not a problem yet. And when it will be, we have good ideas yeah. to tweak the viruses a bit in order to keep using that strategy over and over again. Um, and the day that we will have immunity against all viruses, we won't need <laughs> vaccines anymore. Maybe, yeah. That's Very true. Yeah. Very <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. But there's actually a lot of options of viral vectors that people are researching. There's like so many, I could not mention them all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So this is the type that you work with, you yeah. mentioned, is the uh, the viral vector type of vaccine. How do you work with it? What exactly do you do? Yeah, so I work on the part of producing it. So um, let's say the more traditional way to produce viruses um, would be producing them in eggs, as we still see nowadays for many influenza vaccines. Um, eggs? Like chicken eggs? Chicken eggs, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, chicken embryonated eggs. Nice. <laughs> so um, the advantage of it is that it's relatively um, straightforward, simple, um, could be inexpensive compared to some cell culture techniques, which, as we mentioned, cells can be kind of complicated to to work with. Um, so, so yeah, um, vac- uh, eggs are still used to produce vaccines nowadays. How, how does that work? Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Um, how, 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 yeah, ask how do you away. make viruses with eggs? <laughs> yeah, so, um, for example, the NDV or influenza, they both can replicate in, in eggs. So that's already like a prerequisite. The virus needs to be able to um, to produce itself, replicate in eggs. Um, there are different sections inside the egg. Um, there's the, uh, allantoic fluid, for example, which is a very specific part in which I know the NDV replicates, Mm -hmm. replicates. So I know when people make NDV in eggs, you need to inject the egg, like you use a needle and you need to inject it in a specific way that it reaches the region that you need Uh. it to. And then you let that incubate for a few days. So you let, you know, you give it some time to produce the virus and then you can collect that fluid, purify it and that's your vaccine easy that's really cool (laughs) (laughs) yeah but then when you look at the disadvantages of that um an egg you can't really define everything that's inside the egg right Mm. um there can be some variability from egg to egg and when it comes to optimizing since you can't really uh, choose what's going on inside that egg when it comes to what's the content of it, um, exactly what's going on, what am I adding, what am I not? It's just the egg has the contents of an egg. Yeah. Um, it means that you also can't optimize every single parameter like you can with cell culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're limiting by your farming capacities. Yeah, there's it's... also that you depend on the chicken egg supply. 
And also there are people that are allergic um, to egg components, which are already ruled out of vaccines that, that are produced in eggs. Um, yeah, so those are a few aspects around that. Um, and then when it comes to producing in cells, so there's many ways to do, to do so. Um, I think one very, um, key difference into how you can use cells to produce virus is if the cells are adherent or if they are in suspension. So what this means is, like you mentioned before, how cells can, like, grow in a membrane and things like that. Those are adherent cells. Um, these types of cells, they, um, need to adhere to a surface, they need to stick to that surface, they need to stick to each other, they need to feel like they're in this together. (laughs) Most human cells are adherent. Yeah, yeah, Uh. so for, yeah, for example, your epithelial cells, like the cells of your skin, they're, they exist in these layers that are all adhered, adhered. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Brain cells, muscle cells, all are said to be adherent, whereas blood cells are said to be in suspension exactly yeah that's a good comparison if you think about your blood cells they're um following the flow you know floating around so that would be a suspension type of cell um so when it comes to production typically it's um you can use adherent cells for production but it can be a lot more convenient to use suspension cells that's because when you use adherent cells um you use systems in which Basically, if you want to add more cells so that you can produce more virus, you need more surface. So you're always limited by the surface area of your system. Mm -hmm. So there's so many systems. The um, kind of more straightforward one you can think of is there would be a a flat surface with your cells. um, And then you have a media, which is... um, Cell juice. Cell juice. It's mm-hmm. what the cells need, the nutrients they need, the signals they need, what it's they need to, uh, to thrive. Pink. It's very cute. Yeah, it is, it is cute. The one I use, unfortunately, is not pink. It's uh, clear. <laughs> it's kind of yellowish. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of clear, kind of yellowish slightly. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of pink media, which is very cute. Um, but there's also... Um, other ways of culturing adherent cells to make them kind of feel like suspension, which is um, you use little spheres and then you make the cells adhere to those spheres and then you float those spheres around. Uh, that's so clever. Yeah, those are called microcarriers. Um, but then you run into the same problem. There's a limit of how many cells can cover those spheres. So again, it's you, uh, you're limited by the surface area when it comes to scaling up. Still, I imagine you increase the surface area by a lot compared yeah, to yeah. just have like wells yeah. or cells inside. That's really yeah. clever. That's really it's, nice. It's a really interesting technology. Yeah. yeah. So um, the way I imagine it is, let's say I have a cube of one meter by one meter by one meter. If I have uh, suspension cells, they can basically fill the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and make virus. And this yeah. is, would be the most efficient. If I want to use adherent cells, I would have to put either super thin layers that go uh, across the cube yeah and on each layer there would be cells but i would lose so much space or like you said you could put some little balls to fill that cube and have cells on the tiny balls exactly uh, but the balls fill some space so it's yeah. never as efficient as mm-hmm. suspension cells um i'll just be careful with the efficient because sometimes um, I guess what we can consider efficient here is how much virus they produce. Yes. It doesn't necessarily mean suspension cells will always produce more virus, mm-hmm. but the technologies using suspension cells have much more potential for optimizing it to reach that point. And also, um, like I was mentioning it before, in terms of scalability, the more complicated it gets, uh, it can uh, interfere with how feasible yeah. this technology is. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to suspension cells, um, like we mentioned, they're floating around. So there's this liquid, this culture, um, which has all the cell juice Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, um, these cells float around and we mix, constantly mix this so that, um, it's as homogenous as it can be because we want to make sure all the cells are receiving all the nutrients um and all the oxygen and everything so that's actually one of the main challenges 
when scaling up is, for example, um, right, so what I'm mentioning now about cells floating around in a liquid that's mixed, that's what we can call a stirred tank bioreactor, mm -hmm. which is the type I use. Mm -hmm. So it's a vessel, it's like a, a cylinder, <laughs> and it um, has several things connected to it. You've been to my lab, you uh, saw really cool. yeah, <laughs> the yeah. amount of things connected. Yeah. Um, and we can have those in like a lab scale, which is like one liter, three liters, maybe even five liters. And then you can go scaling up and up and up until you reach like industry levels of like 20,000 liters, um, like huge tanks. Um, so, <laughs> so one of a, sorry, a yeah. bucket with cells floating around that are being stirred up. Yeah. Uh, that's what you call a stirred tank. Stirred tank bioreactor. Bio okay. Yeah, okay. exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this bucket has to be very well closed. Mm -hmm. It has to be in a sterile environment because we don't want um, any contamination because these cells could get contaminated with bacteria. Um, and we, of course, don't want our vaccine when we produce it to be contaminated with these uh, with bacteria or other things. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, caution when it comes to making sure it's kept sterile and everything. And then what, what I was going to mention when I was talking about scaling up to these huge amounts is one of the main difficulties when scaling up is precisely making it homogenous. Mm. Because um, when you have this huge volume, it can be hard to make sure the nutrients are equally distributed and the oxygen. So maybe you might think, okay, stir faster. But these cells are also sensitive, so mm -hmm. you can't stir too fast or you'll be damaging the cells. You'll be damaging the virus if you need the virus to be... Um, Integer. Yeah, exactly. If you want the integral virus. So, yeah. <laughs> it sounds to me like making beer, but yeah. it's vaccine. It's a, this big cylindrical, probably a, it's a metallic <laughs> case uh, yeah. of one, three or five liter, but you can go much higher, I would suppose. Mm-hmm. And is it a batch like beer? Is it you you seed your cells in, you seal it for a few days or for a few hours, and you collect at the end? Or is there a way to make this process continuous? Because I, I feel yeah. like one of the hard one of the parts that make this process less efficient is the fact that you have to reseed a new tank every time. Yeah. So um the beer is actually a really good comparison. Um, usually yeast are used with, with beer for that fermentation process. Um, actually, when you make subunit vaccines, you can do something very similar where you just put the yeast in bioreactors and make them produce the protein for, for those vaccines, um, which is uh, culturing yeast is definitely more straightforward than culturing uh, cells, mammalian cells. Yeah. yeah. Um, But yes, that's a very good question because there are different types of, of production when it comes to that. There are batch productions, which like you mentioned, you put everything inside, close it up, wait until it produces what's needed, then you end the process, collect what you need, and that's that, and then you have to start over um, for the new process. So there are other types of process. I'll mention two, which I think are um, the most relevant here. Um, there's the fed batch, which would be a step up from the batch, in which um, you put everything inside, you close it, but as the days go by, you add some more nutrients so that the cells can hang on in there for longer. But with the fed batch, you're just adding, you're not removing. So there is a limit when it comes to like the volume and also um, as the cells stay in the bioreactor, they consume nutrients, they consume that sweet cell juice mm -hmm. but they also release um poop exactly cell poop mm -hmm. <laughs> um so you also need to remove this waste if you want them to be able to stay there a really long time so that's another uh aspect to fed batch is you're not removing anything so even though you're adding more and more nutrients the cells are also releasing waste so it's also not something that can last forever Um, it will reach a certain point where you stop the bioreactor and it's like, okay, this lasted longer than a normal batch would, but um, it's time to end. <laughs> <laughs> there, is a, there, there is a problem there, right? Because as you're saying, the volume is limited. You can't keep adding things. Yeah. 
And the cells, they also, but the cells are consuming the stuff that you put in there. And the cells are also changing the environment in which they're in. Uh, there is changes in oxygen level. There is changes in pH. I, I can't think of, uh, I'm trying to think of a way of regulating. I know you have a way, but like if you have to regulate the pH, the only way that I know to regulate the pH of a thing is I either add uh, some base or acid and it's usually in liquid form. If I keep adding liquid, the thing will just spill out. Can't yeah, do that, yeah. right? Yeah, so that also adds to the limit. Yeah, like you said, um, these are all things we control in bioreactors to keep them, first of all, for kind of like the issue we mentioned with eggs, reproducibility, um, because we want to keep things as constant as possible, always the same for safety reasons and also because we know that way is efficient to produce virus. If things change, maybe it doesn't produce as well. So we keep a lot of things controlled in, mm -hmm. in bioreactors. Um, the pH is one of them. Like you said, to change the pH, uh, you need to either add a base or add an acid. Um, typically, as the cells grow, um, the culture will become more acid. And so we need to add base. Um, so we have probes in the bioreactor, which um, are devices that will measure the pH. They'll measure the oxygen concentration. Some measure uh, capacitance, which is a measurement that you can kind of correlate to how many cells are in there. So you can also uh, kind they, of see the growth. They hinder the electricity that would pass through yeah, it, I would exactly. suppose. Yeah, exactly. When you have uh, no cells, electricity passes super well, but then cells get in the way. And so you can more or less yeah. gauge how many cells there are in there. Yeah. So, yeah, we call that the cell density, which is like the, um, the concentration of cells you have. So say in one ml, you can have a million cells, you can have five million cells, um, and that'll, that's the density, cell mm -hmm. density. Um, so yeah, for the pH, actually, you can also use gases instead of liquids. Mm. Um, yeah, in, in our lab, we typically use a liquid for the base and uh, gas for, for the acid, mm -hmm. CO2. I imagine gas is better, right? Because uh, it's more compressible. So you can add more than you would add of liquid. Yeah, you can also, um, because in the bioreactor, since there's air going in, there's oxygen, there can be the, the CO2 to um, regulate the pH. We always have a way out for the gas right. as well. So um, the volume won't necessarily become an issue. What I can see possibly being an issue with the gases is how it permeates into the liquid. Because mm. when you're adding a drop of base, it goes right in there, right? And then it gets stirred in. Um, but when you're adding a gas, then there is that question of um, how efficient is it that it's going inside the liquid and, and uh, changing the pH? Because yeah. if you think about, for example, soft drinks, um, you you force the CO2 in the liquid by yeah. having high pressure, but you can't just put your cells in that high pressure to put that uh, yeah, that gas yeah. in the liquid. You have to kind of just let it in there and hope it solubilizes, which is not a guarantee. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we do have a sparger, which is something... <laughs> <laughs> it's something... Uh, it's a, a way out for gases that is inside the culture. We keep it like inside the liquid. Um, it's a microsparger, and that means it has many little micro holes. So you we can pump the gas through there so um, that it uh, forms all these bubbles inside the liquid. So we usually use the sparger for oxygen, which is what we really want to get to the cells because they need that oxygen to stay alive and keep growing. Um, so yeah, oxygen is also something we regulate. We also have a probe that measures the concentration of oxygen. And um, in response, we have the sparger, which injects oxygen, little bubbles of oxygen into, into the culture in case uh, the cells need more oxygen. In case they're consuming oxygen and it's going down, we add more. Mm -hmm. It's so nice. Uh, yeah. th this idea of having tiny bubbles of oxygen to make sure that it diffuses through exactly like if we put a big block of sugar, it won't dissolve too fast. Yeah. But if we put sugar grain by grain dissolves super easily yeah. exactly yeah you should you should see the bioreactor it's so <laughs> cool when i came to her lab the last time she was bringing one outside of the uh, autoclave yeah and man it looked it was this big thing with all these tubes going around <laughs> and at the end it was just a bucket with like a bunch of stuff out of it but like it looks like such a crazy thing it's it's like big 
crazy scientist like object in there that you should grow it's so cool it looks really cool you should look yeah, yeah. <laughs> are there like clear tubes that pump things in and you see the liquids like... yeah yeah wow i i love that yeah it's <laughs> really cool yeah and uh i i was disappointed because the cell culture i saw some of them that were working as well the cell culture media wasn't pink <laughs> yeah. and i was like whoa, whoa, where's the dmm like why is it not pink like what is happening but uh, yeah they they usually for the people at home the reason why it is pink is because the pink is a ph indicator mm -hmm. which means that when it turns to uh orange and yellow time to change the media because Stress it's there yeah whereas these guys must have like the bioreactor itself must sense uh must sense the ph, they have yeah. a pH so it makes no right? sense to have the the pink thing and to yeah. waste some money on the pink mm. <laughs> pink mm -hmm. ph indicator yeah. yeah we just click on a program and it tells us what the ph is yeah. in the bioreactor at that moment less so. cute less expensive <laughs> Yeah. yeah you pay you pay for what you get yeah yeah so all of this regulation i mentioned it's not that we have to look every minute and see what it is and what we have to add the actual uh computer system already has like some equations which it uses to think like um oh okay the ph dropped so i need to add this much base and then automatically it will add that amount of base. That's nice. And it must do it in such a timely fashion that yeah, usually yeah. when you look at the measurements, oxygen level is constant, pH is constant, and you're beautiful yeah. making uh yeah, making the mm -hmm. this virus. Still we do have some anxiety <laughs> whenever we have a bioreactor going on, we're always like I wonder if it's okay. I wonder if it's okay. Let me go check on my baby. <laughs> do, do you have like an app on your phone that keeps you connected would to the so bioreactor? No. I know that I think some companies already develop some kind of thing is that do that. The ones we have don't do that. So, but they do have like a green light and a red light. Yeah. So sometimes when you walk into the lab in the morning and you see it's red, you're already like, oh my God, what happened to my bioreactor? Yes. <laughs> then you run to see what's Monday. going on. Yeah. Oh my you God. You never turn off of work. <laughs> you had the bioreactor there and then you have it on your pocket all time. Oh like, is God. it good? And then you <laughs> You have a notification that goes eh, 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 every time. Everything is failing. <laughs> yeah, okay. So we, we do understand what bioreactors are and uh, how useful they are to have a bunch of cells that can, like, we can have more cells and have the cells controlled for a longer time to produce the virus vector that we want to deliver vaccines. What I'm not quite sure I understood is what your research is involved in that how how are you improving or optimizing bioreactors what exactly are you doing with the bioreactors yeah. so um for the virus i work with which is the ndv to begin with there's already not much research um about producing it in cell culture people typically produce it in eggs mm -hmm. so there's already that first big step of okay can we produce this in cell culture mm -hmm. um, can we get it there to this cheap sweet spot yeah, yeah. can we Can it be more efficient or as efficient as eggs? Will it even work, right? That's the first step. Mm -hmm. um, so, spoiler, it does. Nice. <laughs> We can yes. get it to produce in, in, in cells. Um, and then... Stay tuned for a peer-reviewed <laughs> publication coming up. <laughs> coming? It's coming. Yeah, it's coming. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Um, Once we, we get it to produce, there's many things we can do to try to get it to produce more. So to have a better efficiency. Um, because, you know, the more we produce with the same resources, the more feasible it will be. Because, um, yeah, you'll need to use less resources to make that much more doses. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if I get it right, uh, it, was, it was first a proof of concept, just showing that whatever we've been doing on eggs... We can now do it on bioreactors. You're showing that that's possible. Yeah. And now you're tweaking different things in the bioreactor to make that process that you just showed it's possible more efficient than what it already yeah. is. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when talking about bioprocesses in general, which is you know using cells and these biological systems to produce something, um, we can divide it into three parts. Um, upstream analytics and downstream so upstream is this part of okay we're putting this in the bioreactor we're trying to get it we're putting the cells we're putting the media um, we're infecting it with virus and we're trying to get it to produce more virus that's the upstream all of that has to be optimized if you put not enough yeah, cells it'll yeah. take days but yeah. if you put too much cells well 
why didn't you harvest the previous bioreactor better? Yeah, with a lot of cells, the concern is the nutrients. Are there enough nutrients to support all these cells? Will they just die because there's too many of them and your media doesn't support that? Um, we can control temperature. We can control at what time we we infect. So like how long we leave the cells growing before uh. we infect, how early we harvest it, the, how early we harvest the virus produced. Um, if we leave it longer, if we leave it less, there's so many aspects. So you've been going through this optimization process at every yeah. step. And now yeah. we're talking upstream, the things you put in. Yeah, yeah. So um, all these parameters I've just talked about are like optimizing the upstream part. Yeah. So then another part that I've also worked on a lot is the analytics, which is um, you need to quantify what you're producing. Um, it's not so straightforward as like, okay, I'm done producing. That's it. It's like, okay, now I need to run an assay to find out how much I, how much I produced, mm -hmm. which takes uh, a few more days. Um, so yeah, analytics is something that can be overlooked, but it's also a really important part of the process because you need to not only be able to produce it, but also measure it, um, in terms of quantity and in terms of quality. Um, so one measurement of quality we can use is, um, when we quantify viruses, we can quantify total particles or we can quantify the functional particles. Mm -hmm. So, um, when I use assays that depend on the virus infecting something for it to show up on my assay, I'm looking at infectious viral particles. How many viruses do I have that can infect, um, that are active and functional? But we also have other assays, such as assays related to PCR, in which, um, for example, PCR will look at um, the genetic material of the virus. So that's more of a total quantification because not necessarily every um, viral genome you see there will be in a functional virus. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so not every virus that's there will be functional. And that relation, that proportion between how many total viruses you have and how much of that is functional is a measure of quality. And yeah, so that's something that we can only find out having good analytics. So that's an important part of the process. Um, and then comes the downstream. So the downstream is the purification, basically. Um, the downstream is something that I haven't worked on yet. There is a lot of other people in our lab that work with it. But basically, like, okay, you finish the culture, you know you have virus in there, but you need to now get the virus out of there and remove everything else and make sure it's sterile and ready to be injected into someone. And Let's remind the people, there is yeah. cell poop with a virus. Yes, <laughs> you have to remove the cell poop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it's basically those three big aspects. So what I've been working with a lot in my project is uh, several upstream parameters um, and the analytics. And then, yeah, there's other people in my lab, like I mentioned, that are working on the purification part. So once you have all of that, you basically have a complete process that then can be scaled up to be used by a company or industry and all that. And it's then, very interesting yeah. how iterative uh, this process must be. You know, every day you go to the lab and you're like, okay, this today we're testing with a small uh, with a small batch of that amount of oxygen, and then you try this out and you're like, okay, I got better results than last time, so maybe we would put more oxygen next time. You put yeah. more and then, oh no, it doesn't work as well. Okay, <laughs> we'll stick with the previous value, and you yeah. go and I suppose you start with small scales with a lot of conditions, yeah. and then you take the conditions that work best and see if it still works at large scale. Exactly, exactly. And um, since we're working with cell systems, not everything is as straightforward as it looks. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I've never worked with like the more chemical industry part, but I have a feeling that it's a lot more straightforward than when we work with bioprocesses because, for example, like you said, you're messing with oxygen or something. You already have an expectation before, right? Like, oh, um, because the cells do this and this and the viruses do this and this, if I add this, then it'll be better. They need this. And then sometimes it makes it worse. And then you have to think, okay, what's going on here? 
So what I think is really fun about it to me is that um, we kind of think about it in a, a macro way and also a micro way. Because when we're thinking about, okay, what went wrong? What would be better for these cells? We think about it in a micro way of like, um, what are these cells doing? What are these viruses doing? What does each cell need? But then when we're testing different conditions and comparing like the macro aspect of like how much was produced, um, all those aspects I said that the bioreactor can measure, for example, how was the pH changing, like all these other indicators that can give us a sign of what's going on, that's more like the whole culture and the macro aspect yeah. of it. So I find it fun to kind of switch back and forth. You mm -hmm. must use your bio knowledge in order to make yeah. these educated guesses. And exactly. when those educated guesses don't work, you're like, there must be something I overlooked. And then you go back yeah, and you read and you're like, oh, it's true that the cells do that. And yeah. it must be interesting to apply this, uh, like you yeah. said, on a macro scale, on a micro scale and thinking about these problems. Yeah. And for sure, like in, in my lab, for example, there's people of so many different backgrounds that work on this because... As you said, like it makes this bio knowledge, which is something that I have more of a background with. But then there's people that have more of a background with, for example, the computer part of like um, these regulations that I mentioned. You need to set them up to be to the ideal, ideal regulation. Um, so that the red the, signal is there less yeah, often. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's yeah, there's oh, there's so many backgrounds in, in the lab that it's like even hard to like mention all of it but yeah. we love them multidisciplinary teams yes. yeah. yeah like more really engineering cool. people more bio people more computer science people and breaking we all work them together. silos let's yes. go <laughs> that sounds really cool it sounds like a really cool lab yeah so the, the whole research that you're doing this whole optimization of this process for producing the viral vectors for vaccines that uh we can clearly see like how important that will be uh, how how much that would change the amount of vaccines that we have now and how easily we can produce them and the prices and everything that, that right now when we need a lot of vaccines. So doing that research right now in the future, whenever another pandemic shows up, which will surely eventually come, uh, we will have some much better technology to deal with that. So you're kind of setting the pavement for uh, for us to be... You're kind of preparing us for a problem that will happen again in the future, yeah. right? And that's that's amazing. That's really cool. <laughs> Thank that's you. Really cool. I really enjoy it too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really cool. Let me ask you, did we talk about everything that you wanted to talk about? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah? I can just think of one thing. Um, when I was mentioning the types of, like, batch, fed batch, there yes. was one more I was going to mention, yeah. and then I forgot to get into it. Yeah, go on. Go so, for it. Okay, I'll And I think after that, maybe you wanted to talk about the perspectives yeah. for the oh, whole yeah, world yeah. and the importance of your research for, yeah, on yeah, a global scale. Yeah, we can scale. go into that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we kind of already mentioned that sometimes when we, we were did. like, well, it has to be feasible to be yeah, able to be used. Of course. Yeah, I can think of if there's anything to add to that, but if not, then Perfect. maybe not. But okay, so, um, so we mentioned the batch and the fed batch for um, as different modes of production, different types of ways you can produce. Um, so we mentioned that the fed batch, we're only adding nutrients and we're not removing anything, right? So um, there's this other type, which is called the perfusion, in which we're going to be removing things as well. So it's kind of a balance. We're constantly adding nutrients and we're removing the, the waste, the mm -hmm. spent media, you can call it. And one huge advantage of that is when we remove um, the the supernatant, which we call it, which is the media without the cells, because yeah. we're keeping the cells inside. We're yeah. only removing the liquid. We're also harvesting the virus. So um, what happens is the nutrients go in, the cells are producing the virus, they release the virus into the liquid, and then we collect the liquid constantly as well. Ah. So we're also constantly taking virus mm. instead of only taking it at the end. And this can be really um, advantageous to some viruses because for, um, for many of them, as the culture goes on, um, their function, their activity gets compromised. So usually they're not in, in the ideal temperature for them because it's the ideal temperature for the cells, which can be different than the best temperature for the virus. They're in a system that's getting mixed, so maybe they're going to be damaged by the mixing. 
there is several factors um, going on that make the virus lose infectivity over time. So if you can take it out of that situation quicker, you can guarantee um, better quality um, several times because you're not only harvesting once, but several, several times. Yeah, when I think... When I think perfusion, I think uh, semi-permeable membrane. Is that a bit of the the principle of it's a membrane that lets pass very small particles, such as the liquid, the nutrients, the bacterial, uh, the the poop, <laughs> uh, the cell poop, and the viruses. Whereas the cells, they cannot pass through those pores, yeah. and so the cells stay in the reactor, and yeah, they they get caught. Yeah, that's essentially it. There's a few different types of devices that can be used for this um, this selection, for this uh, separation. Um, some of them are indeed membranes, so just like a, a, a film, let's say, like a... A film with yeah, very, with very, very tiny small holes. pores. Yeah. yeah, with tiny holes. Um, but there's also one that I've used once, which is really cool, which is an acoustic filter. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of using a membrane, it uses sound waves to trap the cells. That is so cool. <laughs> it's very what? interesting. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure I have enough physics knowledge to quite explain exactly yeah. what goes on, yeah. but you know, something about the frequency of the sound waves will trap the cells in a certain way mm-hmm. so that the rest of the liquid goes out, but the cells are kept yeah. in the biractor. There must be something about resonance. The cells uh, vibe yeah. so much that they're, <laughs> they're vibing. <laughs> Whereas the rest <laughs> just passes through. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, so there's different, uh, they're called uh, like retention, cell retention mechanisms. Yeah. So you can use several, yeah. <laughs> I have just this image of like, I don't know, cool. cells vibing to like Taylor Swift or whatever. <laughs> like, just they're like, this is my channel, this is it. <laughs> This is my song. I'm staying here. I can't leave. I can't leave when they're playing my song. That's my jam. <laughs> exactly. That's so funny. Yeah. That's so funny. Okay. Well, um, the episode's getting quite long. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, we, we touched a bunch of, yeah, of topics. It was um, a lot of things. Yeah. This is a very cool conversation. Your whole research is so cool. <laughs> so amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and telling us about this. And, uh, I mean, teaching us about all, all of that. I think... Um, uh, Oh, that's it, it's an amazing <laughs> opportunity to just be here and learn so much about amazing scientists like you and others so thank you very much for coming thank if you so people, much for having me yes if people want to, to uh, enter in touch with you get in touch with you where can they reach you uh, my prof is called Amin Kamen okay um, so we have a website um, which you can look at the members and if you look at me <laughs> uh-huh. there's a few links there like LinkedIn or my email um, and we'll we'll link up uh, whatever link you can give yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The link will be on the description and everything. The, yeah, put everything there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Perfect. You are such an easy guest to have <laughs> because you're very uh, formulated about what you say. You're very systematic, oh, and I really you. appreciated having you on the podcast today. Thank you. It was great. Uh, you guys <laughs> give really good guidance to the topics. It was really fun. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Orders of Magnitude. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a 5 stars rating on Apple Podcast and share the episode with your friends and family. If you would like to give us feedback, you can reach us at ordersofmagnitudepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear your opinions and ideas on the subject that we discussed today. Orders of Magnitude is an original project led by Philippe Carle and Matthias Schultz. The original music was composed by Vincent Elis. Stay tuned for the next episode coming out in two weeks.